Uh, we're going to have Children's Church and Nursery dismissed, and if you're a guest with us today, uh, the Children's Church and Nursery will be going right out that back door, downstairs, and uh, they'll be well taken care of and have a Bible lesson on their age level, and so we invite you to uh, have them go down there if you'd like this morning. The rest of us are going to be in Acts chapter 15, so let me invite you to turn there with me this morning, Acts chapter 15. And uh, as we already mentioned, it is great to have you today. We're thankful that you're here with us in our service, and we hope that uh, the worship that we've already had an opportunity to experience has been a blessing to you as we have uh, been able to rejoice in the fact that we are God's children by faith in Christ, and we hope that you know Him today. And if you don't, we want you to know Him today. And uh, we want you to know that uh, we celebrate His birth, yes, but more uh, more than that, along with that, I should say, we celebrate the fact that He laid down His life for us and walked out of that grave victoriously after three days. And because of Him, we can have life and have it more abundantly. Um, I want to, uh, as we as we turn to Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15 is a very important chapter in the book of Acts. Um, it is kind of the very center of the book, uh, but it's also central uh, in understanding what it means to have salvation by grace through faith. Uh, because what had happened in the 15th chapter, as we'll see in just a moment, is there were some people that were introducing false doctrine uh, into the church, and uh, they had to deal with that. And uh, although we may not be dealing with the specific false doctrine that they dealt with in the book of Acts, we still deal with false doctrine in our world today. It's, it's very alive and well. And, uh, and so today's message is uh, going to be a little bit heavy. I'll go ahead and warn you. Uh, because um, whenever you have to deal with false doctrine, whenever you have to deal with false teaching, uh, there can be misunderstandings and uh, all of those kind of things. And so I hope that this morning as we, as we go through this passage of Scripture and deal with this, uh, what we, what we under, want to understand is that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that's very clear throughout Scripture. And uh, we want to make sure that that's clear as we uh, proclaim that as a church and uh, what we believe. And so we hope to make that clear. Uh, I mentioned a moment, a moment ago that, that we might not be dealing with the exact false doctrine that um, they were dealing with in, in, in the early church. It, it had actually more to do with uh, some Jewish teaching and, and, and some culture and some backgrounds that uh, some of the Jewish believers were bringing into the church, uh, and some were just false teachers. They weren't really believers at all. Galatians seems to indicate that. Uh, but we do deal with false doctrine. And I was doing some research this week just trying to get different people's opinions on what they feel like are false doctrines that we have to deal with today. What are some things that we're dealing with in our culture, in our society? And uh, I asked a lot of people that question, and uh, a lot of people just didn't have an answer for me. And so uh, I I looked up, I I got trusty Google, right? And I said, uh, you know, false doctrines infiltrating the church. You know, see what kind of articles I can find about that issue. And I did find a good one by Charisma News that talks about popular beliefs in our current culture that threaten to infiltrate the church. And I thought uh, they listed six. I think there's a lot more than six, but I think these six, I would agree with these six. Uh, The first one that they listed is the teaching of universalism. And basically, universalism is the belief that all people will be saved or that all ways lead to God and eternal life. Uh, Many uh, who subscribe to this theology claim that, for instance, Christians and Muslims worship the same God. So uh, an example of universalism, even in the city of Erie, is the Universalist Unitarian Church. Uh, If you go uh, out uh, toward uh, 90 off of, uh, what's the name of that road? I wanted to say Steritania, but it's not Steritania. Um, out off the road, uh, Oliver. Oliver Road. Thank you. A Universalist Unitarian. Is it Oliver Road? Perry Highway. Perry Highway. That's it. That's the one. That's the one. If you go out Perry Highway, right before you get to 90, you'll see a Universalist Unitarian Church on the right-hand side 
Uh, typically, they believe in universalism and the idea that all people will be saved, all paths lead to God, uh, let's just all get around the campfire and sing kumbaya, that kind of mentality, uh, universalism. Then uh, there is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is the belief that God's primary concern is for believers to be healthy and wealthy. And if Christians are sick or suffering or poor, it must be because of sin or lack of faith. That is a false doctrine. Uh, The third one that they list is the New Age movement. And I think there's a lot of things that fall under the New Age movement category. Uh, I'm reading here again from this article. Uh, They say the New Age movement is a belief system of Eastern influence that emphasizes universal tolerance and doing uh, doing what feels good. It contends that man is divine and can create his own reality and identity. So the New Age movement... A lot of different things would fall under that category. Uh, number four is legalism. Legalism is actually what we're going to be looking at in Acts chapter 15. But legalism is the improper use of the law described in Scripture to attain or maintain salvation. Legalism fosters judgment of fellow Christians for not adhering to one's own ideas of holiness rather than encouraging them to imitate Christ Obeying God's standards as explicitly outlined in Scripture. A true legalist would be someone who might believe in work salvation or uh, something of that nature. There's a lot of people that are called legalists that are not necessarily legalists. They just may have high standards, but they don't necessarily believe that those high standards contribute to one's salvation. So we've got to be careful on using that term, but a true legalist would be a person who believes in work salvation. The opposite end of that spectrum would be what this article refers to as those who believe in hyper-grace. And that is an overreaction to legalism where people abuse God's grace. Uh, And the article says that believers find themselves drawn to the hyper-grace movement Because they're not just looking for freedom from legalism, but they're also looking for freedom from God's standards. So the hyper-grace movement. And then the last one that the article lists is the emerging church movement. And uh, that is a movement that claims to be Christian, but employs culturally sensitive methods to make the gospel more palatable to post-modern culture. Jesus' life is treated more like an allegory or a narrative rather than a true event. And a particular concern is the inclusive approach to various belief uh, belief systems or an emphasis on emotions over truth and the notion that there is no hell, no judgment, no need of forgiveness. Rob Bell, who was a a pretty popular uh, person in the emerging church movement, uh, is someone that would fall into that category. Uh, the emerging church does glorify honesty and confession, but without repentance. And the article will go on to say, Behind all of these false ideologies is the belief that Scripture is not infallible and truth simply changes with the times. And dear friend, that's the world that we live in. We live in a world where people believe that, 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 that truth is, is not uh, 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 they believe that truth is relative, that truth changes with the times, we have to make the gospel more palatable, all those kind of things. And uh, those are dangerous doctrines. Those are dangerous teachings that we must be aware of. And so let's look uh, together this morning in Acts chapter 15. Uh, if you have a Bible or you can grab uh, one in the pew in front of you, Acts chapter 15. I want to begin reading, by, uh, begin reading the first five verses. The Bible says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, notice this now, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. 
But some believers who had uh, belonged, uh, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, "It is necessary to circumcise them, and to order them to keep the law of Moses." So in these first five verses, we see this dangerous doctrine being introduced. Chapter 15 begins with the introduction of the false doctrine by a group of men from Judea. They were saying that people cannot be saved, these Gentiles cannot be saved, they cannot be reconciled to God, they cannot be part of God's family, unless they are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. We are Gentiles, most of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, and we're 2,000 years removed from this scenario, so it's a little bit difficult for us to understand why this was so important to the Jews. They were struggling to uh, understand how to interpret Judaism in light of the gospel. Uh, Dr. Dwyer says that the circumcision was a covenant sign of God's approval that dated all the way back to Genesis 17. Was this century-old covenantal sign to be disregarded now? Was God's covenant law to be ignored by Gentile converts? Many did not believe so and insisted on its practice, believing it to be essential to personal salvation. In contrast, Paul and Barnabas, who, by the way, who were Jews, proclaimed the same gospel, the same gospel to both Jews and Gentiles and established churches for the discipleship and fellowship of both groups in the respective cities of their travels. They made no mention of Gentiles adopting Jewish ceremonial practices, nor did they suggest that Jews surrender their Jewishness for the sake of the gospel. In fact, they opposed both. And so these false teachers are basically coming in and saying that Christ's sacrifice was necessary, but Christ's sacrifice was not enough. His sacrifice was not enough for Gentiles to be saved. Gentiles have to undergo the Old Testament rite of circumcision in order to be saved. What they were doing was they were adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were suggesting that Christ's atoning sacrifice was not enough to save believing and repentant Gentiles. They had to add to what Christ had done by being circumcised. And when you add to the gospel, dear friend, it is a false Doctrine. It is a false teaching. It's false. It was false 2,000 years ago. It's still false today. Christ is enough. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. And anyone who tells you different is not telling you the truth. As a matter of fact, Paul says that anyone who tells you different should be accursed and should be referred to as false brothers. Look at what he says in the book of Galatians chapter 1. He says to the church at Galatia, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But listen to what Paul says. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, what does it say? Let him be accursed. And as we have said before, and so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He makes it crystal clear, very clear, That if anyone comes and brings a different gospel, a gospel other than what is found in the New Testament, Paul says that person is to be accursed. He went on to say in the second chapter, some people believe that it's talking about the very same thing here. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. They're adding to the gospel. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, notice, disguising themselves as the apostles of Christ. If someone came in today as a representative of Satan coming into this building or any other church for that matter, preaching a false gospel, preaching something other than what we have in Scripture, you know, they're not going to be wearing a red pajama suit with horns on their head and a long tail and a pitchfork. 
The, the, the Bible says that the, Satan himself uh, transforms himself into an angel of light. They're going to look good. They're going to sound good. They're going to, uh, you know, they're going to act the part. Paul says they disguise themselves. As a matter of fact, he went on to say in verse 14, For even Satan himself disguises as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. But their end will correspond to their deeds. So we need to understand that there are false prophets, there are false teachers all around us. And we have to keep our guard up. We have to know the truth in order to recognize the counterfeit. Listen to what he told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, Timothy, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and what? Imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. So i got good news for you this morning. The good news is Christ has done enough. There is nothing you or I can add to what He has done. I've talked to people all my life that say, Yeah, I, I believe that God loves me and I believe Jesus died for me, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. You don't know where I've been. You don't know the sins that I've committed. You don't know how, how my life used to be. And I've got good news for you today. What Jesus did for you is enough. It's enough to wash your sins away. It's enough to give you a new life. It's enough to allow you uh, uh, not to hold your head in shame any longer, but to stand up and say, this is what Jesus did for me, and I have received Him as my Savior, and He's given me the right to become a child of God. Christ is enough. And when we say or imply that what Christ did is not enough, it is an affront to the provision of God and makes a mockery of the sacrifice of Jesus. The things that I do for Christ or in response to Christ and His love do not add to or contribute to the full and final payment that Christ made on the cross. Paul makes it clear in Galatians and other places, chapter 2, verse 16. He says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. One of, the, one of, the, thing, one of the, uh, the, the things of the Reformation was sola fide, sola faith. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. You will not be made just or right in the sight of God because of what you do. It's because of what He has done for you. It's because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. So the second thing that we see in this passage of Scripture is that this dangerous doctrine is now confronted. Look at again at verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension. In other words, that means they had a big blowout. No small dissension and debate with them. It wasn't small, it was big. They had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. I'm afraid far too often that one of the mistakes that we make in Christianity is is that we, we don't ever want to ruffle anybody's feathers. We, we never want to you know, hurt people's feelings, and, and, and we don't want to, uh, to, to ruffle anybody's feathers, and so we hear stuff that doesn't sound right, and we hear stuff te- people teaching stuff that's not right, and we just say, well, you know, no big deal. Well, it is a big deal. If it goes against this book, it's a big deal. And I don't think that, that, that we should you know, be rude and crude and, and mean and all this stuff, but we need to stand for what's right. We've got to speak the truth. And when people bring in false doctrine, we, we can't just say, oh, well, it's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. We've got to speak the truth in love. And so upon hearing this false doctrine, Paul and Barnabas immediately confront this false teaching, and there's this huge disagreement and debate that takes place, but they're not going to let it go unchallenged. 
None of us like confrontations and controversy. Well, hopefully none of us do. But sometimes it just can't be avoided. And I like what John Phillips said. He says, that of course was Satan's answer to Paul's evangelism. Paralyze the church with inward strife. Controversy is one of the enemy's favorite tactics against the church. And how true that is. And so they take the matter to Jerusalem. They have it addressed by some of the other apostles and elders. And we see, thirdly, that this dangerous doctrine is contradicted. It's contradicted. What do you mean it's contradicted? Well, on their journey to Jerusalem, what do they do? As they're going to Jerusalem to to have this meeting, what we know now as the Jerusalem Council, they stop along these cities where believers are, and they report to them about the Gentiles being saved. They're showing to all these other believers as they're on their way to Jerusalem what God is doing among the uncircumcised Gentiles, how God is saving them, how God is changing their life. And so they're contradicting what these false teachers are saying. The false teachers are saying they can't be saved. And Paul's saying, oh yeah, they have been saved. And here's proof. Here's evidence. Here's fruit of their salvation. Look again, verses uh, 3 and 4. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria. Notice, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Skip down to verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word Uh, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. That's very important. Peter says these uncircumcised believing Gentiles received the same Holy Spirit as the believing Jews had received. The same Holy Spirit that filled Peter on the day of Pentecost is the same Holy Spirit that filled these now believing Gentiles. And Paul or, or Peter said, God made no distinction. It was no difference. It didn't matter if they were Jew or Gentile. What mattered is that they had believed in Christ. And when they believed in Christ, they all received the same Holy Spirit. There's not a Jewish Holy Spirit and a Gentile Holy Spirit. There's not an American Holy Spirit and an Australian Holy Spirit. There's not a white Holy Spirit. There's not a black Holy Spirit. There is one Holy Spirit, and He brings us into the family of God and makes us the family of God. We're one in Christ. Look at verse 9. And He made no distinction between us and them. I guess I got ahead of myself a little bit. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by what? By what? Say it one more time, real loud. Faith. 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 Cleanse their heart by faith. He didn't cleanse their heart by circumcision. He didn't cleanse their heart by keeping the law. He didn't cleanse their heart by anything else other than their faith in Christ's finished and complete work. So they share these stories as they're traveling. And uh, Peter stands up and uh, contradicts what these... Uh, uh, false teachers were saying. It was Christ, listen now, it was Christ that made the difference in these believers' lives. Christ. It was not their ethnicity that made the difference. It was not their tradition that made the difference. It was not their culture that made the difference. It was not their religious practice that made the difference. It was not their outward appearance that made the difference. It was Christ who made the difference in their life. And what basis did He make that difference? He made that difference based on their faith in Him. Dr. Dwyer says, Peter understood that by faith and faith alone, God purifies the hearts of all men from sin. The manifestation of the gift of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles when they were converted confirmed the same as His manifestation to the Jews. And you know, Paul deals with this again in various other places, but Romans chapter 4 is probably where he deals with it in more detail than any other place. 
He says in Romans chapter 4, verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul says, look, if Abraham could say, hey, I'm right with God because of my works. Paul said that Abraham could boast, but Paul says Abraham can't boast. You know what our works do? Our works condemn us. Our righteousness in God's eyes are filthy rags. Our works do not save us. Our works show how inept we are. And I don't mean that in a... Well, I just mean it the way it sounds. We're inept as it comes to the righteousness of God. We're inept. We fall short of God's glory. That's the bad news. But the gospel is good news. The good news is Christ died to redeem us. Christ died because we were inept. But I'm glad to know He's not inept. We were insufficient, but He is all-sufficient. Christ gave His life for us because we needed Him desperately. Paul goes on to say in that same chapter, Romans 4 verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing to whom, uh, to, to, of the one to whom God counts righteousness, notice, apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now Paul is making a clinching point in verse 10. How then was it counted to him? Listen to the question. Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after. But, uh, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. That blows the false teaching right out of the water. Paul says Abraham was counted as righteous before circumcision, not after. It was not circumcision that made Abraham righteous. It was faith that made Abraham righteous. God making him Abraham righteous through faith. Look at verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Just a couple of weeks ago, we baptized five people. We believe, as New Testament believers, baptism is important. But baptism does not save anyone. Baptism is a sign. It is an outward declaration of the fact that they have been saved. They've made the decision to follow Christ, and now they want to let the world know that they're not ashamed of that decision. And so they follow Christ in what we call believer's baptism. Because baptism is a sign, an outward sign of an inward faith and an inward life change that Christ has made. And so it says in verse 11, the purpose was to make Him the Father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Isn't it interesting that God in His foreknowledge specifically indicated that Abraham was righteous before circumcision, because God in His foreknowledge knew that this would be an issue that would come up in the church later on. And so Paul says that purpose, the purpose was to make Him the Father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make Him the Father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And so Paul deals with this great... He went on to say, still same chapter, verse 22. Why, uh, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised uh, from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is good news. This is awesome news. Listen, today... You can be reconciled to God. 
Today, you can have life and have it more abundantly. Today, you can sing along with us on that fourth song, I am a child of God. But you can't say I am a child of God because I'm a Baptist or because I'm a Catholic or because I'm a Presbyterian or because I'm a Methodist or because I have done this or I've done that or I've not done this or I've not done that. I'm a child of God today because of what Jesus has done for me. That's why we can say I'm a child of God. Because of what we do or don't do, but because of what He has done. What wonderful news that is. The truth of the Word of God will always contradict false doctrine. That is why we emphasize so much in our messages and in our teaching. You need to have a personal walk with God yourself. You need to get into God's Word for yourself. You need to be involved in a Bible study. You need to be involved in discipleship. You need to get involved in the Word of God because it's so important for you to know what you believe and why you believe what you believe and see if maybe there's some things that you believe that maybe aren't true. There are some things that as I grew older, I understood. I believe that, but it's not because the Bible taught me that. It's because mom and daddy taught me that or because so-and-so taught me that or she said this or they said that or he said that. And I found out, you know what? That's not what the Bible says. You need to find out what the Bible says for yourself. You, we believe in the priesthood of the believer. We, we believe that, that you have the awesome privilege to study the Word of God for yourself. You don't have to go through someone else to do that. The last thing we see in verses 10 through 21, is the correction of the dangerous doctrine. Dangerous doctrine is corrected. So Peter asked this question. We're back in Acts 15 now. He asked this question. He says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? This is one of the most important statements in all of history, what he says in verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. If you underline or mark or highlight things in your Bible, verse 11 is such an important verse as it relates to our salvation. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. There's nobody that's going to be in heaven that's not saved by grace. Saved by grace. We're not saved by law-keeping, by ritual, by the church, by the sacraments, by baptism, by good works. We are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. And Peter's bold statement silences the crowd, and then Paul and Barnabas speak up. And give further evidence regarding the truth of what Peter just said. I love what, I love what John Phillips says about this. He says, God was on the side of freedom, not bondage. Salvation was of grace, not of law. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is getting something we don't deserve. Law said, do this. Law said, do we have that quote? Law said, do this. And thou shalt live. Grace said, live and do this. That's so important. Law says, do this and you'll be saved. Grace says, live and do this because you are saved. Law put the load on man. Grace put the load on Christ. Law and grace as systems of salvation were and are mutually incompatible. We either saved by law, which depends on accumulating our own merits, or we're saved by grace, which depends on us accepting His merit. And so they remind the crowd in verse 12 that God had done signs and wonders among the Gentiles. And then James gets up. James, as you may remember, is the half-brother of Jesus. He was a leader in the Jerusalem church. He was well-respected, and when James spoke, people listened. James quotes in verses 16 and 17 an Old Testament passage 
This passage is from the book of Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. And what James does is he quotes that passage from Amos to help these people understand that what is happening in our world right now with these Gentiles being saved is actually a fulfillment of Amos' prophecy. Amos said, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind, the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from old. And so uh, James uh, lays out the solution to the problem. Now, he goes on to say uh, in in verse 19, and we don't have time to really cover this the way I'd like to. uh, He says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And so James says we don't need to saddle them with the law. We don't need to uh, uh, complicate their faith with ceremonial trouble. Uh, But he says there are four specific areas that Gentile believers should be asked to respect for purpose of fellowship, there's going to be barriers to overcome when you put people together from different religious and, and, and cultural backgrounds. And one of the things that many of the Gentiles were being saved out of, they were being saved out of idolatry. And so uh, uh, James says that, that out of respect for the Jewish believers, let's encourage the Gentile believers to abstain from these four things which are so closely connected to idolatry from which they were saved from. First of all, to abstain from food offered to idols. Secondly, to abstain from blood. To abstain from that which had been strangled. And to abstain from sexual immorality. It seems that James got these four points from Leviticus chapter 17 and 18. It was a text that specifically addressed both ceremonial and moral practices for the fellowship of Jews and Gentiles. And so uh, this text was known as uh, the Holiness Code and would have been well understood by the Jews. And so Dr. Dwyer says, The wisdom and genius of James is clearly seen in the biblical basis of his proposal and its relevance to the situation. Uh, Dr. John Phillips says that this is no longer about law but about love. No longer about law but about love. That we should be considerate of our other brothers and sisters in Christ who, who may, might be weaker brothers or might have uh, issues with certain practices because of the way they're raised or their culture or their background. And uh, we need to take those things into consideration. So it's not about law. It's not about being saved. It's not that these things are going to save us, but it's about we, we're being considerate of other people now. We're, we're, we're seeking to show love to them. Now, sexual immorality, of course, is dealt with elsewhere in Scripture. And... Um, uh, but it was very closely associated with idol worship as well. So what do we, what, how do we take what we learn from Acts chapter 15 and apply it to our lives? Well, first of all, it's very, very important that you personally and intimately know the truth for yourself. Personally and intimately know the truth. When you hear something that doesn't sound right, you need to search the Scriptures. The, the Bible says about the Bereans that they searched the Scriptures to see if what the apostles were say, uh, said were, were true. If I say something that doesn't sound right, search the Scriptures and find out. Am I just giving you Grimesology or am I giving you theology? The Bible says if we know the truth, the truth will set us free. So you need to personally and intimately know the truth for yourself. Don't be gullible. The last thing we need are gullible Christians. Don't be gullible. Everything that has a, the, the name Christ or Christian attached to it does not mean it's, it's Christian. Find out if what people are telling you is true. Don't just believe it because it's on your favorite network or because, it's, uh, because the person is, is a phenomenal speaker. Find out if it's true. This is what John told us in 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? For many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
What are you going to test those spirits with? That's right, the Word of God. You test it with the truth. Secondly, we need to earnestly contend for the faith. The little book of Jude, it's just one chapter, verses 3 and 4, says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, notice, to contend for the faith that was once, uh, once for all delivered to the saints. Why? For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We have to earnestly contend for the faith. I love the way the Amplified Bible uh, explains these verses. It says that we are to fight strenuously for the defense of the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. The faith that is the sum of Christian belief that was given verbally to believers. We cannot allow false doctrine to take root in our lives, in the local church, or in the lives of others. We must call it out. We must confront it. We must contradict it. We must correct it. And if necessary, separate from it. Ephesians 5.11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Don't take any part in that. But he says we've got to go further. We've got to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. Peter says in 2 Peter 2.1, But false prophets who arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, notice this, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. These people have been bought by Christ. And they have now been deceived. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. <clears throat> Folks, this is Scripture. False teaching is not a game. It is not... I, I can't emphasize it enough. This is serious business. People are led astray by false teaching. Titus 1, 10 and 11. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Same people we're dealing with in Acts 15. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Paul says, we've we got to silence these people. So how do we respond to false teaching as they arise in the church? Well, That same article I quoted a minute ago by Charisma News, they said, we preach Christ. We reinforce biblical doctrine, clinging to the highest authority, the Word of God. We preach Christ who was promised by God back in Genesis. We preach Christ who was born of a virgin. We preach Christ who healed the sick, raised the dead, made the lame to walk, and set the captives free. We preach Christ who chose to die a criminal's death on the cross in order to set us free from sin. We preach Christ who rose victoriously from the grave never to die again, thus assuring everyone who places their trust in Him of eternal life with Him in heaven. We preach Christ who will come again to judge the living and the dead. And by God's grace... This will always be a place that preaches Christ. And the third thing that we need to do is we need to separate from unrepentant false teachers. Now this is where the rubber meets the road. Because sometimes this is really hard. But the Bible says that there are times that we have to separate from people. Romans 16 Verses 17 and 18, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. What's the next two words? Avoid them. There are some people as Christians that you need to avoid, particularly people who bring in false doctrine. Why? 
For such persons, this is verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of who? The naive. So important you know the truth. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.5, These people have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. What? Avoid such people. Titus 3.10, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. 2 John uh, verses 7-11, through 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such, one, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. We have to separate from unrepentant false teachers. You will be exposed to false doctrine. You will be. Matter of fact, just about every time you turn on the television, you're exposed to false teaching. That's what the word doctrine means. It just means teaching. We live in a world that's teaching our children false things 24-7. You are going to be exposed to false doctrine. It's not a question of if... It's a question of when. And it's a question of what. Are you going to be gullible and taken in by it? Or are you going to be a person like the Bereans who knows the truth that will set you free and who knows the the truth so that whenever a counterfeit comes your way, you will easily recognize it? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to earnestly contend for the faith? Or are you going to make exceptions because that false doctrine is coming from a friend or a family member or a community leader? Are you going to expose false doctrine for what it is? Or are you just going to ignore it and hope it, does not, uh, hope it goes away so you do not ruffle any feathers? False doctrine is poisonous. False doctrine is like yeast that infiltrates every part of the dough. It has to be silenced. God help us to be like Paul and Barnabas and Peter who stood up for what was right. They stood up for the truth of the gospel. As we bow our heads and close our eyes this morning, I want to thank you for your patience and your attention. And I want you to think about a couple of things with me. Number one, I want you to think about the message of the gospel that you heard today. The truth is, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever, Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's not a coincidence that God brought you here today to hear about His grace and His love and His mercy one more time. He wants you to know today that you can be saved. He wants you to know today that you can honestly and truthfully sing that song we sang a moment ago, I am a child of God. You can be made a child of God today. If you hear nothing else I say today, please hear that. By placing your faith, calling on the name of the Lord. He will save you. He will forgive you. He will change you. He will make you into a new creation. Give you hope. Give you forgiveness. Give you peace.
peace that passes all understanding and give you a home in heaven. He wants you to know that. And there's going to be people that are going to tell you there's different ways. There's going to be people that are, that are going to tell you that, that you're too bad. There's going to be people that will try to convince you that you don't need it. I don't want you to know the truth today. Because it's only the truth that can set you free. It's not my truth or your truth. It's God's truth. God's truth doesn't change. God's truth is not voted on by culture. God's truth is truth. We want you to know that truth. Maybe you've been exposed to false teaching. Well, I should say maybe. All of us have. The question is, what are we doing about it? What are we doing with it? Allowing it to, to fool with our thinking. Are things that God says are wrong are we, we're becoming more acceptable of those things? The things that God says are right, are we discounting those things? Are we allowing our children to be educated by the world system that, that teaches them that they're just an accident, that they're just an animal? That, that, that they don't have really any purpose or meaning in life? Are we teaching them the truth about the fact that they were created in the image of God? They were knit together in their mother's womb. God has a plan and a purpose for them. See, we've got to really be careful. Because it, it makes a difference. It affects people. We've read it over and over and over again, how it affects people. This is not just a game. This is real... This is real <coughs> serious stuff. These are eternal souls that we're talking about. Maybe you need to say, God, help me to be like the Bereans. Help me to be a person, a man, a woman, a teenager, a boy, a girl, that, that knows your word, that studies your word, that just doesn't accept what Pastor Darrell says or Pastor Darren says or, or anybody else says. I want to know what God's word says for myself. God, help me in 2020 to be a man or woman, boy, girl, teenager that studies and knows the Word of God for themselves. Maybe you need to make that commitment today and say, God, help me to fulfill that by your grace. God forbid, maybe you've been teaching false doctrine. Maybe you've been telling people things that aren't scriptural. Not that maybe, not I'm saying that, that you're teaching things that are false about salvation, but maybe you're teaching things that aren't true about other areas of life. You need to be careful because the Bible says that we're going to give an account of every idle word we speak. What comes out of our mouth, we're going to give an account to God for. Are we teaching our children the truth? Are we teaching those that we have influence over the truth? can't teach them the truth unless we first know it. So I, I want to encourage you this morning. Find a place around this altar. Find a place around one of these front pews and say, God, by your grace, 2020, I want to be the kind of Christian that knows the truth. I want to be the kind of Christian that shares the truth. I want to be the kind of Christian that lives the truth. And if you don't know Jesus today, why don't you come and let someone show you how you can know Him. As, as joy begins to sing, as we stand together, Maybe you want to find a place and just come and pray and say, God, help me. Help me to be a person.